A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. I spoke to the guy who was in charge and he said we're going to have them in the dock, prosecuted within four to six weeks. And that was over two and a half years ago. If you want to have a strong identity, create a strong enemy. And then you really know who you are. He was asking what happens with that money, where does it go? It was God's money. I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is Episode 8, Operation Nanagai. In March 2020, police arrived at the 12 tribes farm at Picton, near the Blue Mountains, an hour and a half's drive west of Sydney, and at their property at Bigger, in the New South Wales northwest. News footage taken from the air shows a blue forensics tent and what looks to be more than a dozen officers combing the property in navy blue jumpsuits. Some have dogs and others are carrying picks and shovels. With picks, shovels and machinery, long, thick grass is cleared as police dig for clues. They're searching for the bodies of babies at Razorback on Picton's outskirts and on a remote property at Bigger, near Crookwell. And they found them. This is an article from the Daily Telegraph a couple of days later. The remains of at least one baby have been found on a New South Wales property owned by members of the controversial Christian sect, the Twelve Tribes, police sources have revealed. Detectives found the remains in a shallow grave at the remote tract of land at Bigger in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands during a search on Wednesday afternoon. Sources say it is too early to confirm whether the remains belong to one infant or two. It is understood the remains, which are in a coffin-like box structure, were found about 3pm. The painstaking removal operation was delayed due to heavy rain and the fragility and age of the remains. New South Wales Police have refused to comment officially, saying the planned police operation involving detectives from the Blue Mountains concluded yesterday. The police operation had been a long time coming. Over a year earlier, Matt Klein and Rose had spoken with local police about her stillborn baby boy, who was buried on one of the 12 tribes' properties in 2001. They also reported several other unregistered baby burials. After the initial complaint we made to the police who passed it on to the Campbelltown police, probably about 12 months later we got a phone call asking us to come in and make a statement about it. Again, and I said, well, I've already made a statement. And she goes, well, I, I can't find it. So I had to go in and make another statement. Rose went in and made another statement, but made sure she had immunity from prosecution. I asked her, why, why have we been called back in again? She goes, oh, th- there's been another report of a, of a baby dying. And we, we want to proceed further with this. So I gave her all the information we could. We also know that Sarah a concerned local from the Blue Mountains, had called the police in 2018 and again in 2020. I rang them and said, look, I put in a Crime Stoppers report a while back about this exact thing and 
and I've got a whole lot of information because I all that information I researched, I collated. And a detective rang me the next day and asked me a whole lot of questions. And at one point she rang me, said, I'll call you back. She rang me back and said, your story that you're saying now is almost word for word what you said a couple of years ago for Crime Stoppers. I found the exact conversation. So, you know, that was a vindication that I'd pass it over, but it was just, I feel like that was, you know, when I think of those babies, it really, it hurts. It's very upsetting because, you know, how many of those babies died needlessly because their mum didn't have midwifery care because, you know, the people that were trying to speak out weren't heard. Sarah's call to the police and Matt's pressure seemed to have had little impact on the cops. But things changed in January 2020 when Han Zarnicki gave an extraordinary on-camera interview to Channel 9's A Current Affair program. Han had been a hugely important figure in the tribes. He'd been a member since the church's Chattanooga days and introduced the group to Australia in the early 1990s. He became disillusioned, however, and left in 2009. A former elder of 12 tribes came forward, and tonight he goes on the record about its teachings for the very first time. In his interview, Hahn confirms claims made by former members about the child abuse, the brainwashing and the dead babies. I have some problems with the 12 tribes and, uh, you know, I kind of wish they would stop doing that kind of stuff. The whole business, really. Han reached out via email maybe a week after that first story aired. Channel 9 reporter Alison Piotrowski remembers when he got in touch. So he emailed uh, me directly out of the blue. He must have found my email on Twitter, I think. Um, And in his email, I'll read you some of it. Uh, I saw your recent piece. Um, I was described as being one of the first two missionaries sent to Australia by cult founder Eugene Spriggs. I left the community 10 years ago. I had been a devoted disciple for 30 years. My departure was not an easy one. I have moved on, but I think about these things every day. If you want to chat to me, um, come and chat to me. So I guess in a way we got lucky because we hadn't been able to track him down. He'd never given an interview in Australia before, and it was honestly very much... It landed in my lap. Hahn lived on the far north coast of New South Wales, in an old timber home surrounded by lush bushland. Alison and a crew flew up to meet him. Which was a really strange... strange, um, A strange experience, but a really interesting one, because I found, I found him to be far more interesting than I thought I would. I kind of had my defences up... As, as you do, you have preconceived ideas about who this person is going to be. I've heard horror stories about the way the tribes acted, uh, his role as one of the leaders um, and, and where he fit into it. So I guess I had imagined this monster of a person and the guy that I met certainly wasn't. He, I mean, th- this is, you know, decades on, but um, he was quite intelligent, really philosophical, really thoughtful, someone who was obviously doing a lot of soul searching and going back to that time and trying to figure out how he ended up in that cult, how he ended up being a major player within that cult. Sometimes I just wanted to shut the door and (laughs) have some space. But I do miss uh, friends. You know, it's good to have friends. It's good to have someone to talk to. And so if this is, you know, an aid to that, then that's what I'd like to do. This is Master Interview 1. People say I was brainwashed, say, for example. This might be suggested. Alison recorded a full two hours with Han. But only a small portion could go to air. 
As something of an insurance policy then, Han had a family member separately record the interview using a laptop in the corner of the room. He later put the full video online. Through our series, you've been hearing bits and pieces of that. Han's insights were unaffected and revealing. He offered a peek into the cult that nobody had shared before. I've been gone 10 years. I was in the community from 1979 to 2009, roughly. Our leaving wasn't on one day. It was a process. But yeah, about 30 years. And um, it's difficult for me to sort of go, well, I just checked out for 30 years. I had a brainwashing episode. I got in the most trouble for not being forward enough and not spanking people hard enough and not speaking up when I should. That's when I would get in trouble. By this time, this is like... 30 years down the track, 20, 28 years down the track. We're not the same. And the, and the young people don't have what we had. And I know they don't have what we had in the beginning. I know it. And tradition is just sort of wrapping its arms around you and institutionalizing and, and rules and edicts and regulations, and, and which we said we are not good, are happening everywhere. You know, one day, no more piano. Pianos are gone. We don't play piano anymore. But there was something he was leaving out. I had mentioned the dead bodies in my first couple of stories because I knew that New South Wales police were investigating and I knew that there was a big chance that they were going to be digging up those bodies and I kind of had that background info and I never revealed that in the first two stories but I knew I was on the money so I kind of put it out there and just let it sit and then when I interviewed him I kept digging on that question and I think he kind of, I think he thought I was coming in just with this open chat about the tribes themselves. And then when I kept grilling that certain point, I could see the cogs kind of ticking where he was almost in that very moment trying to think about his role in it, um, what he knew. He's probably also starting to get his back up a bit going, okay, there's, there's a criminal investigation going on. I don't want to be, you know, the one that's targeted about this. So perhaps he shifts the blame towards Noon even more because he knows that that's the line that I'm going down. I think he was still only just coming to terms with the fact that perhaps things were worse than what he had told himself they were in his head, if that makes sense. I later remembered that the Australian community had been working to legally register its own private cemetery. I'm 99% sure that this did happen eventually. That, of course, does not mean that the deaths were reported necessarily, but only that they were buried in a legal location. While Noon will have known on which property a baby was buried, the parents would surely have chosen a particular site. The father, of course, would have carried out the task, as the mother would certainly be recovering in bed. They might be alone in that knowledge, and out of respect for the parents, tragic events like these were not topics of general conversation in the community. Whether he's consciously aware of it or not, Han is minimising his role here. He was there for at least one burial that was most definitely not in a registered cemetery. Remember, he was the one who had accompanied Mark on that dark night on the farm in Bigger in 2001. He not only witnessed where Mark's baby boy was buried, he had helped bury him. Alison's interview went to air in January 2020 and got a huge response. If you're not in, you're out. If you're not, if you're not with me, you're against me. 
And I remember getting a follow-up email from him a week later, which which, which was um, quite a lovely, warm email and said that he really enjoyed our spirited conversation, um, that he thought of a million things that he didn't say in the interview that he wished he had, which I think everyone does when they do a TV interview. But he also... Um, reiterated to me that he thought that the the bodies of the stillborn children would have been registered and that the 12 tribes would have absolutely done everything by the book. A year ago, we started investigating 12 tribes. Eight months after filming, however, things took a turn. In January, former elder Hans Anecki gave us his first and only interview. Now, a 17-year-old boy has been charged with his murder. The details were unclear, but it appeared that Han had died when the boy allegedly set his home on fire. I got the police media release saying there'd been a fire in that area. We checked the, it might have been when local news had done like a really small VO in their 6pm bulletin about it. Um, and I remember calling the cause um, up in Lismore, which was the, the local area, and just being like... Is it our um, tribe leader? Is it is it Han? And he confirmed that he thought that it was, or at least it was definitely that property. He didn't know if it was him. Um, I, I felt like I knew it was him. So I remember calling his number. He didn't have a mobile phone. He had a, a home number. So I remember calling the home number a couple of times. Um, and then I sent him an email because he was always pretty responsive on email to me after um, I went up there and did that story with him. And I just said, I've heard some very strange news. I hope you're okay just checking in. And then never heard anything back. And then called police media to say, to call their bluff being like, I think um, this is Han, a former leader of the 12 tribes. And they just kind of stumbled and, and basically confirmed that it was him. I don't know if our story with him perhaps brought unwanted attention um, on him in that area like you have all these thoughts running through your head not that I've ever thought that that you know we were responsible for for his end but it's just that weird situation where you're like wow I had this really strange interaction with someone it went on on the tv we got a big response from it I'm doing this ongoing dig into this cult um and now someone that I know that the investigation had been really focused on now he's dead you know, I learned in the, in, the, in the Bible that I could lose my life, and it's a valuable, precious possession. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose it. The boy, who we can't name for legal reasons, was arrested a few days later and charged with murder, malicious damage by fire, and interfering with a corpse. He's been in custody ever since. In early 2022, I called the police in the Blue Mountains to check on the progress of Strike Force Nanagai. I spoke to a policewoman whose manner struck me as oddly dismissive, even aggressive. She said that she knew who I was and was familiar with my reporting on the tribes. She told me she wasn't prepared to talk about the investigation since it was ongoing. Shortly afterward, I approached the police again via email and was sent the following message. Investigations into Strike Force Nanagai are continuing. There is no further information that can be provided at this time. Matt Klein also feels like he's been stonewalled. I spoke to the guy who was in charge and he said we're going to have them in the dock prosecuted within four to six weeks. And that was over two and a half years ago. 
I even tried to run away. Remember Oz? We last heard from him in episode 5, when he was a boy living in the 12 Tribes community in Florida. He left when he was just 17. I would have loved to run away even a lot sooner and stuff, but when you're that young and your parents have legal guardianship over you, I knew I wasn't really going to make it far. One day, however, he finally got up the courage to do it. So this is, says April 23rd of 2011. This was when I, when I first got my bus ticket and ran away when I was 17. Right there. And it was just something I held on to. And I didn't really want to get rid of it at that point. It's there, though. It's something that's always there. It's just, it's better off one of those pieces that you just keep locked away and pull out for times like this. As Oz has discovered, it's one thing leaving the cult. But making a life outside it is another matter altogether. Suddenly you're in charge of your own finances, your housing, food, bills. It's all completely foreign, a terrifying new reality. It's like being an alien dropped off on another world, you know, and you're just, you drop there and you got to figure out how to, how to fit in and survive. So you're just completely isolated from that your whole life. And then one day you're just 100% exposed to it and your livelihood depends on it. Absolutely no personal bank accounts there as a kid, maybe some leaders or something. But normal people don't have bank accounts there. No credit history. I mean, yeah, use phones, like house phones and stuff here and there. Not much computer use. But that's one of the one of the ways of kind of retaining people there, especially their own kids. You know, they always tell people, well, you're, you can leave whenever you want. You know, nobody's forced here by the will. But it's like building a wall around somebody and then telling them they can leave whenever they want. Oz helped his brother, Suvav, escape the tribes in 2019. You know, even still, I'll have dreams that I'm in the community and, uh, you know, somebody's telling me to sell all my stuff or just just crazy things. Then I wake up and I'm like, oh, wow, no, <laughs> that's not real. So, <laughs> thank goodness. Suvav is 34 and lives with his wife Mary and three kids in a renovated bus on a small property an hour outside of Boston. The bus has white leather interiors, a full kitchen and pull-up couches. There's also a washing machine and a dryer. It's a really cool little setup, but a bit snug for five people. When he was inside the tribes... Suvav worked from childhood in businesses including the soap factory, construction and tree lopping. He'd helped make the tribes hundreds and thousands of dollars. But when he left... Immediately I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Like, we don't have anything. He and Mary had nothing but the clothes on their back. And even they weren't much use. Like big uh, rayon, like Seuss pants and... Like, fluffy pants with, like, the gathers down here and the gathers at the waist. Um, and then small necks, clothes, like, up to your collarbones, covering your collarbones. Um, and then, like, the short sleeve ones were, had to be past your elbow. And long sleeves are obviously to your wrist. Um, and the shirts had to be, like, if you're standing up with your arms straight down, all the way to your fingertips. That's how long. Um, and everything had to be, like, loose. Suvav always loved cars. 
In the tribes, he became a bit of a mechanic. Shortly after getting out, he took on labouring work and bought a truck. From there, he has built his own diesel fitting business, piece by piece, regularly putting in 16-hour days. Financial stability is a real important thing for me. I still live in a lot of ways month to month, hoping that the jobs that I did, people pay me on time so that I can pay my bills. Um, I don't have any kind of buffer zone for that right now. You know, going forward, definitely would be buying a house big enough for us all. It's a point of pride for Suvav that, unlike the tribes, he looks after his employees. Now I'm hiring three people, and say they make, you know, 30000 in a year or 60000 or whatever, I have to pay the workman's comp percentage of that. And that comes out of money I make. That doesn't come out of their money, you know? And uh, workman's comp is based on how much you pay your employees, based on salary, you know? So you pay a percentage based on that. Um, but because they don't pay anybody... Then he means the tribes. Their workman's comp is super, super, super cheap. Um, ridiculously cheap for the amount of work and liability that people put themselves at risk for, you know. But it's, it is unfortunate to see that uh, they evade all taxes with that kind of stuff um, and workman's comp, probably general liability on insurance, all that kind of stuff is in a whole different bracket than every other normal business in America. Um, uh, and it really is a cheat in a major way, you know. Suvav has hired his brother-in-law, Hashak, who left the tribes this year, to work alongside him. Hashak is 36, but he's never had a bank account or even a phone plan in his own name. I've worked ever since I was 18, but I don't have anything anything to my name, not even credit, you know, like... He's never had a bank account, he doesn't have any credit history, he did, you know, his... We tried to get him an auto loan and... The, they kept kicking his social security number back saying invalid or something like that because it's just never been entered, never ever, for anything. So that's the tough part. There's no, the, the, you have no no financial history. So it's, you know, starting out like a teenager. You know, for someone that's just getting started that has no credit, that has no job, that has no employment history, to rent a house is a huge deal. Like, it's very difficult to find that. You'd have to find somebody that has money, that would co-sign with you or pay your rent for you or something because you just can't move into a place. Nobody's going to want you to move into their house with no proof of income. Hashak and his wife Rivka have had to rely on the kindness of strangers and family. They were loaned an apartment to live in when they first left. The next step is enrolling their three children in school for the first time in their lives. But to do so, the parents have to show medical records, which is a challenge since their kids have never seen a doctor. We can't even do it here because they won't accept. Um, for the schools in Tennessee, they have to have a doctor in Tennessee see the children. Being inside a cult like the 12 tribes can challenge the idea of what it means to be part of a family. By the time someone leaves, they may have lost touch with their own biological families, the parents and siblings they had when they entered the group many years before. Like Oz then, they have to rely on other former members living on the outside, people who understand what they've been through 
and what they need to rebuild their lives. In the US, dozens if not hundreds of these former 12 Tribes members have stayed in touch with each other after leaving. Especially some of the people that started leaving first early on, I think it was very difficult for them to find a network of people, you know? You kind of have this sense that everybody just looks out for themselves in this world, and that's really not the case, you know? There's, I'd say, more people I've met out here that are, are kinder and nicer and give you the shirt off their back a hell of a lot faster than most of the people I grew up with. The 12 tribes' finances have always been a murky area. Despite criminal investigations and prosecutions, the tribes have been able to keep running their businesses all over the world. The farms and factories, the restaurants and cafes, all with the perks of religious tax exemptions and not-for-profit status. And this is the kind of group this is. Rick Allen Ross is a cult expert and deprogrammer who's been involved with the 12 tribes and its former members since the early 90s. First of all, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars that has been accumulated through a myriad of business interests. The the uh, Yellow Deli, the the Mate uh, shops, uh, and also they they would flip property. I mean, they were constantly using members to rehabilitate properties that they would sell for a profit. And let's not forget the yacht, the schooner, that's worth, what, uh, $2 million that the members worked on and so on. So basically what 12 Tribes has always been about is low-cost labor. I mean, all these people who are basically working for nothing but room and board, they have no health insurance, they have no retirement, there's no 401k, there's nothing. I have dealt with certain groups that they get away with everything in the U.S. and then they go to the U.K. or Australia and they don't get away with everything. So I think it's possible that that could be their Achilles heel, is that they have done things that are illegal from a tax standpoint to uh, enrich themselves, that is the leaders, uh, personally, and that they can be held responsible for that and prosecuted. Remember when Han told us that he'd been in charge of the Australian tribe's accounting? In 1992, he set up the group as a charity. According to the Statute of Elizabeth, which is dated 1601, it defines the four heads of charity, and this has passed down into common law in Australia, New Zealand, England, you know, the advancement of education, the relief of poverty, the advancement of religion is one of the four heads of charity. So, on that argument, no tax. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit long-winded than that. I went quite into it. Yeah. And even covering things like wages in kind, you know, like maybe you're just receiving wages. There's, there was a provision in the, in the tax law at the time, which changes, mutates rapidly, that, um, that the government would be able to tax you if it was considered wages in kind, and I made an argument that it wasn't. And it was based on... Uh, our life, our life was, it, was, it wasn't even our own. This wasn't a business arrangement. And so they sent us a letter saying, okay, you're approved. In 2019, however, the tribes had its charity status revoked by the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. The commission couldn't tell us exactly why they did this, 
but it did give some reasons why it might happen. The most common is when a charity fails to provide enough information about its activities. There are other reasons too, including complaints of wrongdoing or when members use the charity's money for their own benefit. The Charities Commission has the powers to investigate this, as does the Australian Tax Office. When the tribes ceased being a charity, they began operating as a discretionary trust. Within that trust, they run a range of businesses, including the Green Bar Company, Mate Factory, Common Ground Bakery, Common Ground Cafe, Common Works, Yellow Deli, Tribal Trading Company, and Bees and Boots. It's not unusual that a trading company would run as a trust. For one thing, it's a way to minimise tax. Trusts receive money and then give that money out to their beneficiaries. We can only speculate, but let's put this in context of the 12 tribes in Australia. We know the workers in their businesses don't draw a wage, as Hahn pointed out. That means their income isn't high enough to be taxed, so they don't pay any income tax. Another thing about discretionary trusts is that the trustee can decide whether beneficiaries get any money. There is no obligation for the trustees to give them anything. And another thing, the assets are protected if anybody gets sued. Trusts are notoriously opaque. It's almost impossible to get any details about them. When I first reported on the group in 2008, though, it was still running as a charity. Back then, the group's holding company had assets worth $4.55 million. It was also making millions of dollars from catering at festivals and events, such as the Royal Easter Show and the Woodford Folk Festival. As Hahn said in 2020... They're making more money now, they're more flush down and picked, and they've been quite successful with um, drinks and green bars and things like that. And so they're not as poor as when I was there. <laughs> well, and they do have some really impressive properties. I mean, Balmoral House is a very impressive yes. property. Um, the Peppercorn Creek Farm, I'm sure it didn't probably cost that much to buy back in the day, but... Yeah, yeah. They're prospering in a way. They're increasing financially. In the States, the tribe setup is similar, albeit on a much larger scale. So you get the people with the money, but then you get the people that will do the labor. That would be people who are vulnerable, like us. Vulnerable people who have gone through broken situations, and they're willing to just... Go in and work for free and do everything. Well... To have their laundry done. I've worked as many as, as four days straight myself. I've worked many 48-hour days. So they'll miss the gatherings to go make money. And they say that you give all for the, for the kingdom of God. And all means all. Teeth, hair, and eyeballs. And you'd be two to three meals a day um, and work 12 to 14 hour days on these commercial job sites. And it was just all that you did for two or three months. And then you'd go back for a month or a week. Or sometimes just a weekend, depending on if you had family or not. And all of that money was going straight to the elders. At this time, I think between from Maine to Florida, all the different work camps, there's probably about 10 different crews. And everybody was told that the money they were making was going to some emergency in the other tribes. Right. 
but nobody ever got any money. And so you had these workforces living at poverty level, making millions of dollars a month. Like I said, we were out working the migrant workers <laughs> well, and, and making more money than them because every nobody got paid. Everybody that was doing the physical labor never expected a paycheck. And most of the time, their needs were never even taken care of. And some of them would call me and they would say, you know, my teeth are rotting out of my head. You know, I mean, I left the group, but they never let me have dental floss or, or even a toothbrush because they said it was frivolous. And so I never had proper dental care. Now my teeth are falling out. I'm not even 20. And uh, what am I going to do? And so this is the kind of way that they always had a good bottom line because they would absolutely minimally take care of these people and they would maximize their profit in that way. If you go into some yellow delis in the US, you're likely to see signs appealing to customers for tips to pay for nappies and other essentials for local 12 tribes children. Yeah, you, you never really know, and they act like they're not making any money at all, like they're all poor. They describe us individually as being under the uh, poverty level. In 2021, the US government provided COVID relief payments to almost all of its citizens. Twelve tribes communities also got the money, but the members themselves never saw any of it. Any normal family out here... Rivka and Hashak who left the community in 2022, were told by elders that the relief payments were being held aside for them in a communal fund. A uh, couple of weeks after I left, I, I asked them what happened because I, I had gotten a stimulus. Like, you know, most Americans got a stimulus check. I had kept it, in my, it was in my drawer for a while, and then they had told me that we, we, didn't, we don't need that money. We're, we're, we're fine financially. What we're, what we're doing with, with those stimulus checks is we're putting, we're putting them in, in a savings account for when we get unjustly taxed in the future by the government. I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. And I gave my stimulus check. One was 8000 But when members pressed the issue, the story changed. But then I asked them about it, and they, they, said, they said, oh, our brothers down in Argentina needed, needed help financially, so we sent it to Argentina. 8600 something like that. Clearly, for a family that doesn't have a car, doesn't have an apartment, doesn't have anything, they said, no, we can't give that money back. We sent that to Argentina. So anyway, that's something that I'm in the process of trying to get through. Um, I don't know what it's going to take. I think if the state and the federal government understood that they were taking all that money and then just paying property taxes with it or sending it to Argentina or Brazil, it'd be very troubling. That that tax credit was not given to families so that some religious organization could spend it on whatever they see fit. That's not, you know, that's not what that money is was for. What would be nice and what would be ideal is to figure out where all the money's going all the money that those people have earned that re- really they should be they should have legal rights to but it wasn't just the relief payments that were being redirected even my mom's inheritance went straight to south america just like all the other money does and that's probably where all the covid money went to and most of the money that they continually every community i lived in my whole life was sending money to brazil they've always been sending money down there 
it's not even humanly possible for them to need that much money. And yet it was always understood that the South American communities needed special help. There are even songs written about it. Well, we, we would hear about them being poor and stuff like that. So they'd have gatherings and even sing songs about how God's people always have shoes. And they would have teachings about how the people in the 12 tribes should not be striving to have $100 shoes because people down in South America don't have $100 shoes. You should give your $100 shoes to those down in South America. But in Brazil, only a tiny fraction of this charity actually made its way to members. Paulo and Jessica, also known as Yadutan and Amuna, lived in a community in Brazil from 1992 to 2007. When I first started traveling around, I was like hearing about all this help and support that was being sent to Brazil. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, what help and support? We get some used clothing, we do get some money, we just get by. It's not like we're, we walk around with brand new shoes. But I don't, think, I don't think we ever got all this money that people are saying they're sending to us, sending to us. We got a fraction of it. Where did the rest of the money go? I, I know that they uh, they used to buy properties in other states or other countries. You know, sometimes money will be sent to Germany, uh, money was sent to, to help finance something in, in Australia or some other place. I, that I out of out of my league. I don't know exactly. One thing I can tell you because I was running the books <laughs> in the in the business. We're not receiving like you know we didn't have a lavish lifestyle. The community had to go shopping uh, at uh, the big markets and trying to get things for free, always use clothing, never never buying things new, not not a lot of uh, new equipment or farming equipment or uh, computers or cell phones. Like uh, the community was very poor, actually. We lived a very poor lifestyle. The people didn't have enough, you know, sometimes they didn't have enough to eat. Um, the diet is very poor. It was rough. I did personal shopping and food shopping for the community. And we had the tea company there, which did support the community to a certain extent. The U.S. would send us $1,000 a month. And that was the only money going to Brazil at the time. You might think that's like in their currency, a lot of money, but at the time it was like two to one. So it's still for 50 people, you know, a drop in the bucket. It wasn't supporting us at all. So what was happening to the money being collected in the US? Well, as it turns out, the tribe's holding company was playing a double game. As we have discovered in a series of internal emails, the money from the US communities appears to have been used to buy bulk quantities of mate from the tribe's farm in Brazil. That mate was then shipped to the US where it was sold back to the 12 tribes American communities at a premium. They sell it to the communities in the US with a really, really high profit margin. The communities in the US were then meant to sell that mate at the Yellow Delis and at their festivals and stalls. They were, in other words, scamming their own members. My grandfather passed away. My mom is the only child. She had lived in Brazil for 10 years, helped start the community there. She really wanted to help 
with whatever she could. So when they talked to her about, you know, using her inheritance to help the community in Brazil, she was super excited and wanted to help. But they gave the money to tribal trading U.S. and they used the money to purchase products from Brazil. Then the products came and they sold them and they had profit. It's just like an injection of money into the U.S. company. And in my mom's mind, 80 grand that she had inherited had gone to help the keep, you know, like, which I, I just think is wrong. And then, you know, I would, didn't have the heart to tell her that, but. The tribes also practice a tithe system, with 10% of the money raised by each community being sent to the church's head office. One thing my brother told me, he was really was like odd to him. He, he went asking, hey, what, what happens with this money that we put, we give, the, like, the, there's a tithe, you ten, 10% tithe to the church or whatever. And, you know, from all our businesses everywhere, every business that we had gave 10% off the top to whatever the, the organization or whatever. And, and so he, he was asking, what, what happens with that money? Where does it go? Like, what is it going to? And, oh, it's, it was God's money. And, and he couldn't get a straight answer about where it went. But then anything else that came in, I would give 10% of it too, if there was any checks or social security money or anything. On top of the tithes, there's, all, there's donations going to Hidden Night. There's definitely inequality there. It's like, but what about what about this other community that can't you know they've been trying to work on their kitchen for seven years and and they can't even get the get their kitchen done you know hit nights just like fatted calf you know get, they get a bunch of big donations and paid all their all their mortgages and then whatever income they're making is pure profit definitely seemed like they weren't hurting other communities that were struggling to make ends meet and even do upgrades on their houses they're just like rolling out huge upgrade projects, additions. I think the last time I was there, they were, they were rolling out a big addition, way beyond what any other community could possibly do. I visited communities that had the same kind of lifestyle that we had in Brazil, you know? Poor clothing, uh, the, the, the diet was pretty bad, you know, like uh, people struggling for, for medicine. For it was, it was rough in some places. In some of the places, Brand new cars, brand new trucks, brand new equipments, like beautiful houses and in the same country. Why is that? In 2022, the Denver Post reported that the 12 tribes and companies related to it own at least 66 properties in the US, worth a total of $36 million. Several of these are mansions. Some former members were told that they were an insurance policy, a place where the cult could go to escape persecution. Dozens of these buildings are listed under the names of high-ranking cult members, most likely to protect the cult's assets. Here's Rick Allen Ross again. And then they were worried about litigation. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were beating the kids up. They knew they were violating labor laws. They knew what they were doing. And they thought somebody is going to come back and try to, you know, claw back their money or they're going to sue us for personal injury, intentional infliction of emotional distress, whatever. And so we will set up a labyrinth of holdings so that there are all these different people who have the money. And there isn't any one entity that is a clear target for litigation. 
This was a way of protecting the assets. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the general membership never had the ability to understand how much money they had, where the money was, or anything. All they would do is just work and work and work and work. Then we found out that some of these places they've had for years, they were all paid for. They didn't know anything on any of these. You're talking about millions. There were two that were seven, like seven million. One was seven and a half, one was seven. And the others were somewhere between five and six million. The cheapest one was five million. <laughs> they had mansions like that all the way to California. And the community wasn't using them. The communities weren't using these homes, but Jean was. Jean Spriggs, from what I have been told repeatedly, has multiple homes. So he had a beautiful house in Asheville, North Carolina, which was near his home stomping ground. And Asheville is a very kind of nice place to have a house. And then I was told he had a house in Brazil. He had a house in France. And he had a house on Cape Cod. And the house in Cape Cod was like a McMansion. And he would go from one house to another uh, over the years. He would be like a snowbird flying from one lovely residence to another, always weighted on hand and foot like royalty by the members of the group. So it was really nice to be Gene Spriggs. Found out he was less than 30 minutes from us at one of these mansions and had been for two months. He was less than 15 minutes from us, but the other guys, they, they wouldn't let, you know, they didn't want us talking to Gene. Bob Pardon believes he was in no shape to meet anybody. Well, he started losing it. When his authority was challenged, then he would explode. And that was not a good advertisement for them. So you very seldom saw him in public, you know, out, out of the community. Court cases, stuff like that, he never went. It was somebody else always represented the group. But that's because he doesn't present well. I mean, if he gets challenged, he's not good. He can't handle it. In January... 2021, Yonek was in Hiddenite in North Carolina when he fell ill, apparently with COVID. By many accounts, he was strong and fit, even at the age of 83. But by the 11th of January, he was dead. For the first time in the 49 years since he founded the 12 tribes, Yonex Church was without a leader. You've been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi, Editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes.
If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273-TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high-control group, can be found in the show notes.